Uh, we're going to be looking, uh, just to set the context, uh, verses 8 through 15 of chapter 2. So we'll begin reading in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, as we've been working through Colossians, we've seen again and again how Paul makes much of Christ and makes much of the gospel so as to help this church see that they were not deficient in anything and therefore they had no need of moving beyond Christ or beyond the gospel to find something for their spiritual benefit, something that they needed. And this was though the problem. The false teachers were coming in and were seeking to foist these kinds of things upon the church. And we see uh, later on here in Colossians chapter 2 the kind of things uh, that were going on. Uh, verses 16 and following, you see evidently some, uh, some kind of return to uh, the Mosaic uh, ceremonial law and a high emphasis on, on ceremonies and so forth. And then also there's this, uh, this issue of the, the worship of angels and so forth. And Paul, Paul says, says, no, no, that Christ... Christ alone is enough. And he gave that warning there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And so there's this great dichotomy. On the one hand, these empty philosophies, the, uh, the elementary principles of the world, and so forth, this empty deception, all of that is opposed to Christ. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, looked at verse 9, and we saw uh, the deity of Christ there, that in him the fullness, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And now, in verse 10, Paul continues on in this same vein. Now, uh, first, he points out here in the first part of verse 10 what Christ has accomplished for believers. And then second, he points out another aspect of Christ's supremacy. And so, we'll look at these two things, but we'll spend much more time considering the first He says, and in him you have been made complete. In him you have been made complete. Now, from the outset, we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand what it is uh, to be made complete. Paul is not saying to these Colossians that their Christian growth is done, that they have arrived spiritually so to speak, as if they have all the knowledge that they can have of God and the things of God, or as if they are as practically holy in their day-to-day living as they can possibly be. We see 
instruction and prayers to the opposite effect here in Colossians itself. And so we see back in uh, chapter 1, verse 10, that Paul had prayed for them that they might be increasing in the knowledge of God. If you can increase in knowledge, you still have more knowledge to gain. And if we were to look ahead to Paul's exhortations in chapter 3, that, uh, that he does not uh, suppose them to be absolutely morally perfect in the sense of absolute, complete moral purity. If Paul had understood them to be absolutely morally as pure as they could be, there would be little cause for him to exhort them. Uh, for instance, as he does in chapter 3, verse 12, to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. If they had already possessed those qualities in the fullest measure possible, there would be no cause to exhort them, to, to put them on. And so I say these things at the outset so that we, as we consider this completeness, this completion of which Paul speaks in verse 10, we want to guard against what we might call, uh, or what the theologians sometimes call, an over-realized eschatology. In other words, we need to make sure that we're not supposing that the perfection and completion of heaven that will be ours in heaven belongs to us here on earth. Right? There we will be completely perfect. As John says in 1 John chapter 3, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're not quite there yet. I think the Huguenot preacher Jean Dea was helpful in uh, kind of helping us to frame this completion. He says, I well know that to speak absolutely, no one is perfect. And that if we compare our condition on earth with that in heaven, all our perfections are but weaknesses. Yet it is true that Jesus Christ, even in this life, in some sense, completes his faithful people. And this perfection which he gives them is not a vain name or an imagination. It is something substantial, a real truth. It is a piety and love, sincere and free and without hypocrisy. And though it may sometimes vary, it nevertheless produces true fruits and works quite different from those of worldlings and hypocrites. In short, we can say that in Christ, we have all that we need for salvation. We are made complete in Christ in having all that we need for salvation. And I think we could express this completeness and think it through in the terms that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 1, 29 and 30, when he said, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ has become to us all of those things. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He has granted to us all of those things. For all who are in him, Christ has granted us those things. If we are in him and he is in us, we have those things. As such, we are complete. And so let's, let's think through those. Christ has become to us wisdom. He has granted us his wisdom. He has also granted us that which is closely connected with wisdom, namely knowledge. In Christ, we have the true knowledge of God. And so he says in the high priestly prayer of John 17, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This knowledge, Jesus says, is eternal life. And this knowledge comes to us in Christ. And so he says just a few verses later in that high priestly prayer, John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. 
or as we find at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Thus, it is through Christ and his coming and his manifestation of the Father, his manifestation of the name of the Father is how we come to know both the Father and the Son. This true knowledge of God leads us then to the true fear of the Lord. And it's the fear of the Lord that it is the beginning of wisdom. And thus in Christ we are complete, not in the sense, again, that we cannot grow in knowledge. We should be continuing to grow in knowledge and in wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. We certainly can and certainly should grow in these things. But we are complete in the sense that in Christ we have all that we need for life and godliness. We have all that we need for salvation. And in whatever ways we still need to grow, we are to grow in these things, not in any way outside of Christ or in any direction away from him, but rather up into him, who is our head. We're also complete in Christ in regard to righteousness. Jeremiah prophesied of Christ in Jeremiah 23, 6, by saying that this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And thus Christ himself is our righteousness. We have no other righteousness apart from him. Though we, uh, it is through him that we have the forgiveness of sins and his righteousness imputed to us because we are united to him. It's like a marriage. And therefore, Paul uh, would say in 1 Corinthians six seventeen that he who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And thus being united to Christ, we receive his righteousness. In the words of 2 Corinthians five twenty one, we become the righteousness of God in him. It's this connection to Christ, our union with him, that... We are justified fully. All righteousness dwells in Christ, and therefore that righteousness is communicated, imputed to those who are united to him. I think Article 22 of the Belgic Confession uh, was, was very helpful in speaking of the fullness of righteousness that we have in Christ, where they said, We believe that for us to acquire the true knowledge of this great mystery... The Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith that embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits and makes him its own and no longer looks for anything apart from him. For it must necessarily follow that either all that is required for our salvation is not in Christ or if all is in him, then he who has Christ by faith has his salvation entirely. Therefore, to say that Christ is not enough, but that something else is needed as well, is a most enormous blasphemy against God. For then it would follow that Jesus Christ is only half a Savior. And therefore, we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone, or by faith apart from works. Do you see how lovely it is that all that we need for salvation is found in Christ? We have all that we need in Him. And in Christ, we are also Sanctified, And in one respect, we are complete in regard to sanctification. When we are born again, we become positionally sanctified, which is to say that we pass from a state of being unholy to being holy. We pass from a condition in which we were sinful and separated from God to a condition in which we are now holy and separated from the world, from sin and from the devil, and separated, therefore, unto God. And this is... Of course, what Paul was speaking of in 1 Corinthians 6.11, when he was speaking of the, the past and prior lives of these Corinthians before they were saved and the great contrast that has happened to them, he said, 
but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And though we are still growing in that sanctification as believers, we are nevertheless complete in Christ. And so just just think of it this way. When any Christian dies, when any Christian dies, they still have areas in which their sanctification could grow, right? Surely you've known Christians who have died. You love them dearly, but maybe you saw flaws, sins in their lives in which surely they had growth to do. But yet, that fact notwithstanding, they still possess that holiness, which the writer to the Hebrews was speaking of when he spoke of that holiness without which no one would see the Lord. They still had that holiness because they were united to Christ. When a Christian dies, they have all of the sanctification that they need to see the Lord because they are in Christ, because they are complete in Him. And as for when we are alive... All of the growth which is to be done by us will graciously be the work of Christ in us as he works within us by the Spirit. But at any step along the way, we are complete if we be only in him. We're not complete in ourselves, but we are complete in him. I think John Gill was helpful when he spoke of Christians by saying, They are perfect in Christ their head, who has all fullness in him, and whom they are chosen and blessed. They are complete and perfect in him as to sanctification. He having all the fullness of grace and holiness for them, they have it in him. He has made perfect sanctification to them. And as to justification, he has perfectly fulfilled the law for them. He has made atonement for sin, has obtained eternal redemption, and brought in perfect and complete righteousness by which they are justified from all things. They are freed from all sin made perfectly comely, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And as to knowledge, though it is imperfect in them in their present state, yet in Christ all the treasures of it are. And they have no need to go anywhere else for any. They are filled with the knowledge of God and of his will and are complete therein in Christ. And what knowledge they have is eternal life, the beginning, the pledge, and the earnest of it, so that they have no reason to be beholden to angels or men, only to Christ. And we can just kind of summarize, I realize there was a lot there, but what he's saying is that believers have all that they need in Christ, therefore there's no reason to seek what we need from men or from angels or from from anywhere else. And that is exactly the, the point that Paul is driving here in Colossians 2, that Christ has given us all that we need. And even in those areas that we need to grow as Christian, areas of wisdom, knowledge, practical holiness, in day-to-day living, if we are in Christ, then we have all that we need to attain to what we should attain to. And if we be but found in Christ, abiding in him and he in us, as he spoke of in John 15, then that is sufficient for us. And that is to say there is no need to look anywhere else for anything pertaining to our salvation or to our spiritual well-being. We are complete in him, in Christ alone. So Paul says, you are complete in him. And then he shifts uh, from speaking about our condition in Christ. The second part of the verse, he says that he is head over all rule and authority. And this very simply is to say that Christ is king. Just think of the Great Commission. How did Christ 
set that up. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority is given to him. He's the supreme ruler, not only over all mankind, but over all angelic realms. And so why would anyone who is united to Christ, united to the one who is head over all rule and authority, therefore seek to turn aside and serve or worship or seek intercession through some other being? There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Evidently, however, part of the false teaching that was creeping upon this Colossian church was that they needed some other kind of intercessor, some kind of mediators other than Christ. And so you have this this idea that we need to, to worship angels, maybe to pray to them so that they might pray to God and kind of go up the ladder, up the chain, and so forth. But... This is not only sinful, that's the chief thing, is that it's sinful to worship an angel, but this is also foolish at a practical level. Foolish for those who are complete in Christ and for those who have full access to Christ as a great high priest and mediator to turn aside from him and to turn to the worship of angels. If you can put it, if we can put it in kind of an illustration, just imagine that you lived in some ancient kingdom and from your birth you were brought up Best friends with the king. You knew him. You were boyhood friends. You used to go out romping in the woods, hunting, whatever. You, you grew up together. And now, as an adult, anytime you had a problem, you could just go talk straight to the king. You didn't have to go through anybody else to get there. How foolish would it be, then, for that man who is best friends on speaking terms with the king, then to, to try to weasel his way into the household through the lowest of the servants. Go knock on the back door some night and say, hey, can you send a message uh, along to the king and try to pass it up the chain? He, he's your best friend. You just, you just go talk to him. There's no need to try to work through the back door. And so it is with us and Christ. Uh, he's, he has all, his head over all rule and authority we are in him. He's our mediator. We can go straight to him as a great high priest. There's no need to try to weasel our way through the back door. Now, in considering these things, both the authority of Christ and the fact that believers are complete in him, we can easily see how this, this fits into Paul's argument, right? See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul's point is that Christ is so great, and now that we are in Christ, our position in Christ is so great, that we are complete in him, and that there is nothing else in all creation that could hold a candle to what we already have. And so why would we turn away from that and turn aside into some strange and foreign bypath? Now, I've mentioned before that in working through this epistle, the pressures that are upon us in 21st century culture are not identical to those that were going on here in the ancient world. But nevertheless, that does not render these words irrelevant to us. These words should be a great encouragement and comfort to us. How comforting and encouraging is it to remember that Jesus is head over all rule and authority? If we belong to him, we can be sure that he's working all things together for our good, that nothing happens to us apart from his will and the will of his Father in heaven, because he is head over all rule and authority. That should be encouraging to us, and this passage should also be to our comfort. 
John Davenant, I think, was helpful when he said, All the godly derive great consolation on account of their being complete in Christ. For when they regard themselves, they find that many corruptions still lie concealed within them, and that in many things they daily fall and sin. But that, notwithstanding these things, they are acceptable to God, they are justified before God, because they are united to Christ by faith and the Spirit. That, indeed, is the comfort that we should derive. Left to ourselves, looking in at our sinful hearts, there's plenty of reason to despair, plenty of things to bewail. In ourselves, we are completely incomplete, if we can say it that way. But being united to Christ, we are complete. In Christ, there is no condemnation. All the sins that we have committed that would condemn us now have no condemning power over us if we are in Christ. And so, Christian friends, in light of this, let us rejoice in Christ and let us serve him all the more with wholehearted devotion, knowing that in having Christ, we have all that we need. So let's, let's pray. Father, we praise you for the, uh, the great encouragement of these words that in Christ we are complete. And Father, our hearts and minds can only vaguely grasp the full weight and glory of these words, but we pray that you would help us to understand it more, that we might rejoice more, that our hearts would be uh, fully established, comforted, and strengthened in Christ, that we would serve him evermore and never turn away. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.